Welcome back to the Extreme Upland Podcast. We have Dr. Arlay Reynolds in the shop tonight. That's right, Dr. Arlay Reynolds, the renowned three-time national champion, sled dog racer, three decades of helping produce energy and hydration in his dogs, the top veterinarian and canine nutritionist in the country. That's right. He's around our campfire tonight. We are so excited to have him here. This is going to be a wealth of information, dog pregnancies, energy, hydration, the different things he does to compete. Folks, buckle up. Let's get ready and let's talk to Dr. Arlie Reynolds. We are, we are so excited to have you here today. I think if you look across the country, really internationally, there's a lot of uh, really good vets and people that talk about healthcare with, with do- animals and their dogs. But I think what intrigues us the most about you, Harley, is you are in your own right, a very top end athlete personally. And so you understand the nature of, of extreme athletics. I think coupled with the fact that you're a musher, and one of the most difficult uh, canine sports on the planet. And your understanding of that has our entire attention. And so we, we are sitting around our proverbial campfire with you tonight uh, with rapt attention. Uh, we, we work with extreme upland dogs that are, you know, 14, 15 miles an hour up and down steep hills, chasing chuckers in places that we have no right to be oftentimes in places that have, you know, names like Hell's Canyon the Valley of No Retreat, uh, those kinds of places. And these dogs are really high-end athletes. On the phone with me today, I have Talmadge Smedley, who's also a great fan, and he's a national champion, reigning horse champion, and a, and a national champion in working with dogs and field trialing and working off a horseback and pushing dogs out there at their extremes. And so what you do very much is extremely fine-tuning for what we would like to do. So with that, I might just open it up to have you kind of introduce yourself in terms of the, your dog world, what you're doing right now. And then we, we're just going to dive right in and ask you a bunch of questions because that's what we're dying to do. No, well, sounds great. And i um, love to hear about people that work with dogs in any arena, but especially in extreme arenas like what you do. Um, I love that kind of country and love to see dogs working out. So I'm looking forward to hearing about what you guys do too. So um, uh, my name is Arlie Reynolds. I'm uh, right now I, I have wear two hats. I work with Nestle Karina as a senior research scientist. And I'm also a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks um, in the Department of Veterinary Medicine there. Uh, I'm a veterinarian by training, got a PhD in exercise nutrition, exercise physiology and nutrition. And for 30 years, I've been a competitive dog musher. Um, the type of dog mushing we do is, is what's referred to as speed or sprint mushing. I uh, run open class teams where the, that we'll have anywhere between 14 and 18 dogs in a team, about as long as a tractor trailer. They'll average close to 20 miles an hour over a 20 to 30 mile trail and do that three days in a row. So it's, put that in perspective, it's like a, Three back-to-back human marathons, averaging three-minute miles. I'm pulling me on the sled, so it's a it's a pretty extreme sport, just like what you guys do. Well, I think you're being a, a little bit modest, though, Arlie, because I, as I look at your exploits, you've won some really big races. Uh, you, I think you've challenged some of the best mushers of of our time before you even got into the sport, and and I think because of your nutritional techniques, how you work with your dogs, your competitive spirit, all of the above, but you're not just a competing, you're, you're the top end competitor. Wouldn't that be fair? Well, I've been really fortunate and I got to give credit where credit's due. I've had some great dogs to work with. And um, so we were fortunate enough to win uh, three world championships and three open North Americans and one of um, only five teams to win what we call the triple crown in our race in the history of the sport. So, but I, I have to give credit the dogs. I mean, I, I had fantastic dogs to work with. Well, again, I know you're very humble, but your experiences as a, as a top-end athlete yourself, how has that kind of applied in your thinking as you approached the, the sport of mushing? Oh, that's a great question. You know, uh, I rode crew competitively in college, and then I was a long-distance canoe, uh, marathon canoe racer. Um, so I, I did compete at a fairly high level myself. And I think the good thing about that is it really helped me understand what the dogs are going through. You know, one of the big issues in, in our arena is pace, right? 
them. If you want to really be competitive in these pretty fast, pretty long races, you can't go out too hard. And it's a mistake a lot of people make. And, and as an athlete, you know, if you go out too hard in the beginning, you get pretty tight and pretty sore and, 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 you know, pretty lactic acid builds up. You don't feel so good. So having that understanding really helped me a lot. And I was really fortunate to work with some of the top Olympic trainers in both track and cross country skiing and um, even rowing and talk to them about what they do in terms of their training regimens and, and nutritional regimens and, and took what I could and applied that to what I already knew about dogs. Well, so if I were a billionaire today, I'd, I'd offer you any amount of money to come in and just be exclusively working. Right now, we have, between Talmadge and myself, we, we personally probably, at any given time, have about 30 dogs that we run. And and uh, between us, I think there's probably eight or nine different breeds. But typically, the breeds that we run with are English Setter, primarily, Red Setters, uh, Gordon Setters, of course, the English Pointer. Uh, and we have a number of other breeds, but when we're talking about these dogs that will reach out and go hard uh, in our extreme upland, it's primarily these types of dogs. Great breeds. I mean, I, I've actually bred some of those into my line of sled dogs, like a pointer, short hair pointer. And I owned setters for several years and hunted them in the mountains here in Alaska um, for charming. So I have a great appreciation for the capacity and ability of those dogs. Well, do you have any of these sled dogs that will point birds and hold point? <laughs> <laughs> I actually did have some that were half bird dogs. Um, you know, when we first started bringing bird dogs into our, our line of sled dogs, we you know, started with really good German short hair and English pointers, and the first generation did actually do that. To be honest with you, it's not something we select for, because <laughs> if you're running down the trail, there happens to be a bunch of grouse there. It's not helpful. Yeah. Um, when you've got a 16-dog team and everybody wants to stop and point at the birds. So um, we got them down to about a quarter bird dog, and that seemed to be perfect. Well, there's a good chance I'm going to win the lottery, which would give me enough money to hire you exclusively only for our team. And so if in this hypothetical world, you were to take a look at our team, take me through what you would start with specifically, I guess, the nutrition. I've, I've heard you talk about the fat content and 90 to 120 days to kind of even kind of closely start getting the ready. So maybe take us through where we would go from today through uh, next year in mid-August. Yeah, well, first, let me say that you've really done your homework knowing already what you've asked in that question. And second of all, I would never come in and tell you you don't know what you're doing because you guys know way more about what you're doing than I do. But I, that's, there's a lot of parallels. And I think there's, there's a lot that we could apply from what we do to what you do. And you know, you, you already touched on some of the important ones. And that is that you know, it takes time to adapt a dog to a new diet and make a, a diet that's going to be geared at extreme performance takes time for their digestive tract to adapt to it and, and more so for their muscles. So we've done a lot of studies on that. And you know, dogs are different than people. People are very, very dependent on carbohydrates. You've probably heard of carbohydrate loading as a strategy for endurance in human athletes, marathon runners, and cyclists. And, things. and that, that is the, the, the preferred strategy for performance. But the thing about dogs is that their capacity to metabolize oxygen very rapidly is about three times greater than, than ours. And because of that, they can rely on fat at exercise intensities or speeds that, that the humans just can't. And because there's so many more calories in fat, um, it really is a great strategy to optimize their ability to burn fat and to spare the much more limited carbohydrate sources for when you really need them for real speed work or real steep uphill things like that. Put that in perspective, a, a thin, fit dog that you guys would be running um, in your field trials and hunting experiences, probably about 6% body fat. That dog has 50 times as much energy stored in fat, even as lean as it is, as it does in carbohydrates. So that, that fat fuel tank is much bigger and it's the one that we want to really optimize for extended performance like you guys do in extreme conditions. When, you're, you're, when you've talked about this previously, I've noted that you're suggesting that you should feed this way all year long. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it takes the digestive tract about a month, and it takes the muscles somewhere between two and three months to make the adaptations that optimize the dog for burning fats. And once you've got those um, adaptations, they hang on to them. But the, it's, it's just absolutely striking the increase in endurance you'll get when they make those adaptations. They've got a fuel tank that's 50 times larger. Folks that haven't done this, say, are they in there? They've got a three-year-old dog, and they're now hearing this saying, shoot, I wish I had known this. Can they start doing it now? Is it too late to develop that? Uh... No, it's, it's never too late. It's actually never too late. 
there's the key, there's a couple keys though, Todd. You know, one is that you gotta, um, you wanna make the adaptation slowly. You know, you don't wanna just switch from a regular diet to a high fat, high protein diet overnight because that can lead to digestive upsets and, and you know, some problems like that. So generally you wanna take about a month to switch from a, a lower calorie, low fat diet to a higher fat diet. And you know, when I talk about high fat diet, we're looking at trying to get somewhere between 35 and 50% of the calories from fat. Um, and so the high end performance diets are right in that range. And the key is, and this is where I see people make a lot of mistakes, is that they'll feed the best diet they can afford to feed while they're hunting the dog, and then switch to, and jokingly say, anything that prevents death in the off-season, particularly when you've got a large number of dogs like you and I do. But here's the problem. You're really shortchanging the dog when you do that. Because it takes about three months to make that adaptation, about the time the end of the hunting season comes along, the dog is fully adapted. But in those first three months when you made the switch, the dog's been trying to make that adaptation at the same time that he's hunting really hard. And so you know, you're, you're really shortchanging them. If you make that switch by the time you're hunting season or the, the time of year that you're really full, you're not working that dog hard, then then he's fully adapted and he can give you all he's got. And he'll recover quickly and you'll be able to hunt him multiple days in a row with the same intensity. Like you, I'm trying to do my very best by my dog. I have 40 years of experience training nearly every dog breed there is. And I'm always looking for that edge. I'm looking for those next training tools. I'm trying to increase my toolbox to help my dog become a better bird dog, to compete harder in field trials, to just to do new, greater, better, to reach further. I came across Talmud Smedley, became really good friends with him, and watched how effectively he worked with his dogs. The natural demeanor that his dogs have in the field, the way he's able to communicate almost like our, an upland hunting Dr. Doolittle. And as I watched him do this, and over the last couple years, start developing his online step-by-step -step courses for taking puppies through the puppies basics and building these blocks, these foundational blocks of training that in the end of the day, produce a broke pointing dog, a broke flushing dog, a broke retrieving dog. It's changed the entire approach I have to hunting dogs. You can check out these online videos and this training and his unique methodologies if you go to teasdoghouse.com. That's tsdoghouse.com. I can't recommend it strong enough. Now, of course, if, if folks, in our case, like I suggested, we, we're hunting three, four days a week, even when it's mm -hmm. not shooting time, right? We're, this, this is, we don't just do this for, we don't do it just to shoot birds. We do this because we love the dogs. We love the work. So we're doing this all year I, round. I totally get that. In the case of that, some basic, I, I, I'm not that into it. I, I, I don't mind going out and doing these kinds of things. It's still important to point out, right, that they should be feeding that same dog food year round, that same, that same nutrition. It, it just need to be monitoring it on a daily basis. And it's not always going to be, can't always read the back of the bag. This is three and a half cups. And you just do that, right? You've got to, don't you have to really be personally in touch with those, their dogs help on a daily basis? That's probably the best advice you could give somebody. You know, um, so when I was, uh, you know, when we were competing, I generally have about the same number of dogs that you do, about 30 dogs that I'm training for the main team. But then I've got younger dogs that are coming up and older dogs that are retired. So we have a pretty large number of dogs that we're working with. And every single one of those dogs is fed individually and monitored on a pretty much a daily basis for the right body condition. And, and you made a really important point there. And we have a slower season too. Ours is the summer. We're still training. We still train three or four days a week in the summer, but it's a different type of training because we have, we have to be real careful with heat and stuff. But, you know, in the summertime, the dogs will eat about half of what they're eating during the wintertime. And um, it's the same diet. We just feed less so that they don't get heavy. Um, and in the wintertime, you know, we're often in a pretty extreme temperatures. I mean, in Fairbanks, I've seen it get as cold as 67 below zero. And, you know, when it gets anything colder than 20, real dogs um, that they're maintaining body weight because they're, they're both keeping themselves warm and exercising. So we run our hands over our dogs every single day. And, you know, we look for a body condition score on a, a scale of one to nine of about a four, four and a half, which means that when you run your hand over the top of the dog, you can feel those spines process of the vertebrae, but they're not sticking out so much that it's, you know, a, like a series of spikes. And I think the best place to look, particularly with dogs that have a longer coat, 
is over the top of the pelvis, so over the hips, where you've got the, the wings of the ilium, those, those wings of the pelvis that come up and surround the backbone. You want the flesh there to be pretty much level. If it's too concave there, the dog's too thin. If it's rounded up there, the dog's too heavy. And, you know, I'm sure you guys know this, but just a few ounces of, of one way or the other can make a huge difference. If they're too light, they get weak. If they're too heavy, whether prone to overheating or to, um, you know, more prone to injury. And, and the heavier they are, the more those become an issue. So maintaining the right body condition score year round is really key. And it, like I said, sometimes it's, it's a twofold difference in food between summer and winter frost. You do fight this battle. I, I have uh, a couple of dogs right now that we, we really like to hunt more. Um, but we've been hunting them a lot. And and I would suggest if you did the score on them, you would find them to be inadequate. I think they are too skinny. We've held one back for four or five days now. But I'm giving them the food. I'm, I'm augmenting it a little bit with some other things. Is there is there some way I can fight that at this point? Or am I just going to have to lay off? Well, let me ask you a few questions about that dog. Uh, first of all, the male or female and how old? So they're both... Female, one's a year old, and one's two years nearly. They are both uh, very high-end athletes as far as dogs, and they are some of our main focus that we are training for, you know, to be ready to up-and-coming dogs uh, to do a lot of things. And, and plus, we just have a lot of fun uh, hunting with these particular dogs. But we've held one back the last four or five days. She's not happy with us because she wants to be out there, but we're, we're concerned. I mean, you can see every rib, and you can see – her hip bones and she's on 32 protein 25 fat really reputable professional dog food we're mixing that's up. a great diet yeah that, that should be adequate um, um, i've had the, the same experience uh, and i have to tell you um for me it's, it's dogs in that age range you know the young hard drivers haven't really learned how to take care of themselves yet they just want to go and um you know sometimes they're much more focused on working than they are on eating which is bizarre, and I think people who haven't worked with dogs like with this kind of drive would, would find that hard to understand, but it's true. So what I try to do with those guys is, you know, one of the things that I've learned is it's sometimes hard to withhold those guys from work because they get almost more stressed when they don't work than when they do. And they often will eat better on the days that they work. So in a dog like that, what I've done in the past, and I'm not saying this worked for everybody, but what I've done is to um, shorten their workload a little bit, but it's still let them work. Um, until you can get their weight on them. And then on the days that you don't work them, try to feed them multiple times during the day to see if you can get some weight on them. And also, with a, with a reputable diet like the one that you're feeding, there's enough wiggle room in the way that that diet is formulated that you can add a little bit of fat to that food. So, like, start with a tablespoon a day, and you can go up to two or three tablespoons a day to the of, of like, corn oil to that diet and usually that will increase the palatability and just that extra amount of fat is sometimes enough to get the weight on those youngsters that have such high drive so that they aren't looking so scary. We have a number of puppies too. We, we have a pretty young crew for in part what we do and we're always raising puppies because uh, especially Talmadge who's on the phone, I, he keeps these dogs and raises them all right to see which ones emerge uh, as better dogs, potential goats, those kinds of things. With the puppies, is there any recommend? Well, first of all, let me back up and just ask during pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, is there any differences you have found to be more beneficial? And then once the puppies are on the ground, are I, I know I've had a lot of uh, professional breeders tell me don't feed puppy food. There's too much protein. Their bones, their joints grow too quickly. And then others say, no, just do it. What would your recommendation be uh, prenatal uh, during the pregnancy and then as puppies uh, hit the ground? Uh, and, and and they're now away yeah. from their mother. Those are great questions. And, you know, we, we raised all of our own dogs for 30 years. That's what we, we still do. And, um, you know, so we've raised a lot of puppies and learned a lot about do's and don'ts in terms of that. Um, let's start with the prenatal condition. I really like to have the moms in good body condition, like a five out of nine. A little, little heavier than maybe you would hunt them if you can. Um, but not obese. You definitely want them heavy. And when you do that, they two things happen. First of all, they've got a little bit of reserve, and second of all, they tend to ovulate more eggs. Um, I'll tell you, like, just anecdotally, and we actually did do a little small study on this with our dogs. You know, our, our main races happen 
in February and March. And so, you know, the dogs are, are working the hardest that they do all year during that time of year. And um, unfortunately, that's also when the bitches are coming into heat. And, and, you know, if we want to breed outside of our kennel, which I think is often a good idea, just to keep some genetic diversity, we would breed against win other top teams so that we, we got some good, um, you know, diversity in our bloodline. So anyways, the, the point being that oftentimes we had to breed right after our big championship races because that's when the other teams were in town. The, the problem with that is the dogs were still a bit stressed and we'd often end up with them either not catching or having pretty small litters. And so um, if, if it's possible to, you know, to decrease their training load a little bit, and it doesn't have to be a long time, a couple, three weeks before you breed, it, it really seems to improve the, the size of the litter. So then let's move to during pregnancy. During pregnancy, um, you want to maintain that body condition score of around five. And it's, you got to be really careful. I mean, guys like you, I, I'm preaching to the choir here, but folks who are doing this for the first time often will make the mistake that the dog looks like it's getting bigger and bigger, but it's actually getting thinner and thinner. You have to keep an eye on that body condition score. You want a little little bit of uh, flesh over the ribs and over the back and a little bit of reserves from on the line. You don't want her heavy because if she's heavy, that can increase the chances of her having difficulty whelping. And generally, you can feed about the same that you were feeding her before she was bred for about the first third to half of pregnancy. And then when you get past the halfway point, you can start increasing it. So depending on what you're expecting, litter size, whether the ultrasound can know or you can feel. If she's having, you know, four or less puppies, you probably only have to go with about 1.25 or one and a quarter as much as you were feeding her before she was bred. If she's going to have a big litter, you probably want to go up to about one and a half times. And, and the other thing is, you know, a lot of us feed once or twice a day during the time that they're, especially after about that, that third trimester, right starting the third trimester of pregnancy, you're probably going to want to let her have access to food multiple times a day because as the puppies are expanding in her abdomen, it's decreasing her capacity to eat a large meal. And yet that's the time when she needs the food the most. So you just be, you know, uh, mindful of, of whether she's getting enough calories into her and she's keeping her body condition. Then once she, once she welts, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. And we see this especially with the, the pointing breeds because they tend to have pretty large litters. If a bitch has eight or more puppies, she is going to produce as much milk at the peak of lactation as a high-producing dairy cow in, in, in comparison to her body weight. And in fact, it, it, her nutritional needs can be six to eight times what they would be in the maintenance level. Uh, that, that lactation, like during weeks two, three, and four, after whelping, can, can put a tremendous strain on her. And a lot of people don't realize that, and it happens so quickly that if you don't if you aren't a little bit proactive, it can be a real problem in terms of the bitch getting thin and then not making enough milk and then the puppies don't cry. So really, really important. I actually feed free choice. It's the only time I feed free choice. And again, watch her body condition. If she starts getting too heavy, you can cut her back. But usually that's not an issue. And then the other really key thing during that period of time is that she always has access to lots of clean, fresh water. You know, they, they really are producing as much milk as a high, as a dairy cow that's producing 120, 150 pounds of milk a day. Wow. In proportion to body weight, that's what these dogs are doing. And, and the number one ingredient in that milk is water. And that's the quickest way you can shut a bitch down from lactating is by giving her water she doesn't want to drink if it's, you know, it's not clean or whatever, or having her run out of water. So that's, I mean, really, really crucial. And then, of course, as we're weaning the pups, we got to be real careful because here's this high-producing dairy cow dog we have, and all of a sudden we're going to take away the uh, you know the puppies taking that milk from her, and she can get mastitis really easy during that period of time. So it's really important to to do that weaning in a way that decreases her milk production, and you can do that by just cutting her feed back during the time you separate her from the pups. And I like that way better than cutting the water back because I think she needs the water. But if you cut her feed back to about half of what she was getting, that'll drop her milk production at the same time that the pups are starting to eat, and, and you will really decrease the chance of her getting mastitis. What just by as uh, a question, what age do you generally prefer to to breed the dog for the first time? That's a good question, and you know our breeding program was based on performance, and we often couldn't tell because you know our our performance is highly based on, of course, um, 
their athletic ability, you know, their, their, what they can do against the clock. And so, you know, yearlings, um, we would never push hard because I think their bodies aren't ready for it. Two-year-olds are, are, would make the main team if they were really exceptional, but they're still not really fully mature adults, at least in the realm that we are working in. And by three years old, we could really see what a dog was capable of. What you had at three is what you're going to get. And so we rarely bred dogs before that time period because we wanted to breed the best of the best. You know, we were really fortunate. Our breeding program, by the time, you know, we were winning world championships, 75% of the puppies we were putting on the ground were making our team, which for us was, was a really good return on the breeding investment. But that's why we waited till three years old. And then we would breed them out. I think the oldest we would breed would be, I think we had one eight and one nine year old girl, but kids are getting older. You don't want that to be their first litter because they'll often have difficulty whelping if that's their first litter. If they've had litters along the way, it's usually a little easier. And after nine, we usually didn't get very large litters, and it was real hard on the mom, so we didn't usually breed after that. You got the puppies on the ground, Arlie, and you've taken them away from the mother. What am I feeding them? Am I, am I going to the same regimen I do with the other dogs? So this is controversial, but I'll tell you what we did, okay? And we had great success. But I think a lot of that is going to be breed dependent. And what you're going to see, you know, in terms of what, what you expect in terms of what we call metabolic or growing bone disease of dogs. Truthfully, you can feed puppies adult performance food, and they do fine. We raised over 500 puppies on Purina Procline performance dogs. We've never had one metabolic bone problem. Part of that is because in our line of dogs, we just didn't see a lot of that. But the, the real key here, and this is where people run into problems, and I'm, and I'm sure, again, I think I'm preaching to the choir with you guys, but it is watching those puppies and making sure that their body condition score is also where it should be. Fat puppies are not healthy puppies. Fat puppies are, are puppies that are more likely to get hip dysplasia or osteochondrosis in their shoulders or, or you know, any of those number of metabolic or growing bone diseases that we see. Uh, I, can, I can give you some evidence on this. And on this isn't in, in pointing dogs, it's in Labrador retrievers, but it, I think it carries through. Purina did a, a lifelong study, Labrador retrievers, where they split the litters. They fed one half of each litter free choice for 15 minutes twice a day as they were growing up in the first two years of life. The other, the other half of each litter was fed half of what their free choice litter mates ate. They followed those dogs out till they died, till they were 15, 16 years old. And what they found, first of all, in the first two years of life, the dogs that were restricted fed, those dogs had one-third the incidence of hip dysplasia and uh, shoulder issues of the dogs that, that were fed free choice. So in other words, there was three times greater incidence in the same genetic pool of dogs, because these were split centers, of these growing bone diseases in the dogs that were fed free choice. So by limiting, and you know, we don't want skinny puppies, but if you have a good body condition score of four, four and a half, um, as they grow up, you can just about get away with feeding anything, and those dogs are not, you're really decreasing their risk of getting those problems. If we let them eat too much, no matter what you feed, you're going to get those kind of problems. If I'm feeding this uh, high-fat, uh, high-protein dog food, would you suggest that I just do the same thing as I do, because uh, I've got four or five little puppies out here about four months old. Uh, again, just be really careful about their body score. Yeah, and, 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 and that's exactly the point on being careful. Now, it's a little harder with a, a, a food that's 25% fat, right? That's a lot of fat. So just overfeeding a little bit can, can get you in trouble. Um, the diet that we used was 30-20, which doesn't sound like it's that much different, but it is. Um, and, you know, you might go with a slightly lighter fat diet for those growing puppies. What we found when we've done a lot of studies on this is the protein level doesn't matter. We used to think that high protein diets cause these problems and we've actually done some work that shows that high protein diets may actually protect against these bone disease problems. It all comes down to two things. One is energy, which is you know related to how much fat is in this diet. And the other is um, the mineral balance. The, the, where we used to, like back when I was in vet school, where we used to see issues with this were when people would feed low energy diets. So the dogs had to eat a huge amount and they were taking in three to four times their calcium requirement and that would cause this problem too. So you never want to supplement puppies with calcium. If you don't think there's enough calcium in the diet, feed a better diet. And you want to, you want to be careful about their total energy intake. 
you can get those two things right, you're going to be just fine. Folks, this week I received my copy of Reb McNally's new Upland Honey book, Chuckers Will Shoot Back and Other Fine Catastrophes. I'm just going to tell you, it was a hilarious read, extremely amusing. It's written about real real characters. Uh, he's fictionalized, but it's instructive at the same time. These individual stories were fantastic, and they had me spellbound. I really, really had a great time reading them. If you love bird dogs, you love Upland Honey, you're going to love this book. Chuckers will shoot back and other fine catastrophes. You can find it on Amazon.com. We'll link it in our show notes. Folks, go out and get that today. It's going to be worth every minute of your time. So are you frowning on me, uh, Arlie, when, and I know you're too kind to say you would be, but are you frowning on me where I'm working these dogs at about four, five, six months to a year like we are? When they're out two or three times a week, and they're covering a lot of ground. I mean, 10 to 12 miles on a time. I'm, am I allowing them? I'm not pushing them because they're doing this on their own, but am I allowing them? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they, uh, am I doing some damage structurally or in their health? Or should I, should I cut back that activity a bit? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions about that because we do the same thing. I mean, our four or five old puppies are running eight or so miles in harness, um, and they're doing it three to four days a week. So um, I, we, we run a probably similar program to you. If you're not seeing these types of injuries, if you're not seeing you know, elbow, shoulder, or hip injury, then no, you're not doing anything wrong. There are certain breeds of dogs, like German Shepherds, where I would be really cautious about doing something like that. But at least the pointing breeds that I've worked with, and yours are probably selected for, for athletic performance too, and in our sled dogs, you know, our Huskies lines, those dogs handle that type of exercise really well. You know, and again, the key is what you just said. You don't push them. I'm not taking a dog and, and trying to see what it can do as a puppy. I'm trying to make what it's doing so fun that it's what it wants to do more than anything for the rest of its life. And, um, you know, they, when the harnesses come out, those dogs are just screaming to go. And you're not going to get that response if you push them too hard when they're young. So everything that we do when they're young is based around just well within their capacity and, and really fun for I hunted uh, a couple weeks ago with a gentleman who had a pointer. He, I think this pointer is five or six years old. And the health index might be a little bit more than you or I would like, but it's not bad. And it's it's gone through an entire knee replacement. And then the next year I had to go through another one. Is that is that just an injury that just kind of inadvertently happened typically? Is that something because maybe it did have too much weight? Or is that a genetic issue with that line of dogs. I mean, when you see, you know, knee replacements as a percentage, what you or, or those kinds of injuries generally, what uh, is the cause? Is it just like any athlete a fluke? What would you say? That's a that's a great question. Without knowing, you know, a little bit more about the dog and the line, it'd be hard to answer. But actually, everything that you touched on could be a contributing factor. We certainly see certain breeds of dogs, Labradors being one of them, that are really prone to cranial cruciate injury. I think some of that is genetic. I think some of it is what we ask those dogs to do. We're asking them to drive as hard as they can and often very uneven and very slippery conditions. In my opinion, a lot of the Labradors that we see in field trials are overweight. And so the combination of those three things, what we're asking them to do in their body condition, I think does set them up for that. But you're, you're absolutely right in what you said earlier, too, in that there are certain lines of dogs that are more susceptible to the, that type of injury. Now, there are certain things that we can do to put the cards in our favor. You know, we're, we're dealt a genetic hand, and then we can, we can actually affect somewhat how those genes are expressed, and also we can protect the dog against some of the things that may not be perfect in its genetic makeup by the way that we handle them. And some of the things we can do is to keep that body condition where it should be at about a four, four and a half, so they're not carrying an extra weight. And also, before we take them out and hunt them hard, get them in good shape. You know, do some work with them where you're getting swimming. is fantastic work. Um, you know, going up and down hills is, is great work. Some guys will road the dogs or have them pull chains to build some muscle. There's a lot of different things that you can do. And, and you know, a lot of that depends on where you are and what you have available to you. I mean, we, we had a, a dog walker, a, a wheel that we built like a carousel that we would put the dogs on in the summer. And we could do low intensity exercise for two hours a day. They'd run 16 miles a day, three or four days a week all through the summer. So that by the time we put them in harness, pulling up an ATV, they were ready. You know, and then we didn't end up hamstringing dogs or causing injuries with their knees or other things like that. 
So keeping their body condition right and preconditioning them before you go out and hunt so they're not like a guy that got off the couch and then goes out and hurts himself because he's not in shape. Are you are you talking about me, Arlie? Because that oh no, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking <laughs> I'm about you. <laughs> <just teasing. laughs> uh, so you you got us uh, you've got us going. We, we're on this proper nutrition. We've got the fat. We're we're typically I understand uh, your recommendation is you feed at night, uh, one time a night, and allows the dogs to digest their food properly. So by the time you get going into the next day, they're ready. So you can correct me on that, but I. Here we are. We're, we're kind of prepped. We've done everything that we've, you've suggested to this point, and here we go. So I've got a dog that I know I'm going to hunt probably two or three times this week. She, she or he's going to go, you know, like like we suggested, hour and a half, two hour runs. Typically, they could be longer if we're on horse and back there a little bit, but mm-hmm. we're we're not really generally endurance athletes because we we have taught and trained our dogs to go hard for an hour and a half to two hours. So I'm, I'm headed in to this week. Is there something that I should do anything more than the nutrition? If their nutrition set, is there anything I should do before I'm going out? Is Should I do any hydration techniques prior to heading out? Is there anything you would recommend? Yeah, I can tell you what we did with our dogs. And this was something that we developed over about a 20 year period of time and used it literally thousands of times during that time and feel pretty confident in it. So you mentioned one thing um, and that was uh, when to feed. From a physiological point of view, um, if you want to stack the cards in your favor. Like you said, feeding the night before is, is really um, an important thing to do. And it goes against what we feel. I mean, when I get up in the morning and I'm going to go, honey, I want to eat a big breakfast, right? But I'm not running at the intensity that our dogs are running for as long as they're running. And the problem with feeding in the morning is that when that dog eats, the first thing that happens when that food hits its stomach is it starts to secrete insulin. Insulin is the hormone that helps bring blood sugar and amino acids from protein digestion into cells. Well, it also turns off fat metabolism. So you've turned off your ability to liberate and use your most important fuel source. And that will stay that way for about four hours after the meal, which means that then that dog will rely almost completely on carbohydrates and it's likely to use up its carbohydrate tank and it's very likely to get tired. Now, the one caveat on this is if you have dogs that are really prone to gastric torsion, you know, to, to, uh, twisted stomach. And those dogs, you are going to have to feed them smaller meals multiple times through the day because, I mean, you're not, that's just a really serious health concern and we don't want the dog experiencing that. In our line of dogs, um, we never had issues with that. So um, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Now, getting to the hydration question, we developed this technique where we would give the dogs, uh, I'm not sure, I'd love to hear how you guys approach hydration. For us, it's a bit of a challenge because as you know, we're we're exercising when water tends to be in a rather solid form, like ice. So we would water our dogs with what we call baited water. We put some food or a little bit of meat in there, just a, like a, a light soup, and warm it up so that they would drink it all before it froze. And so we would typically water them in the morning, an hour or two before we went out exercising. We'd water them right after exercise, a small amount, and then we'd give them some water with dinner. And then my dogs often lived in, in an indoor kennel because it's so cold out. And I wanted them to be able to recover well. And they'd have access to a bucket of water all, all night. And the funny thing that we found is that the, the most water they consumed was about an hour and a half after they ate their meal. Um, so that, that in terms of maintaining hydration, I think that's a pretty important point. But getting back to your strategy, we, we developed this technique where we would put 1% glycerol. So that's 10 cc's of glycerol in a quart of water. And mix that up because it's uh, it's heavy, so it kind of sinks for bottom. But if you mix it up with a little baited water, it's a, it's a tiny bit sweet. The dogs really like it. But what it does is when the dog absorbs that, and that glycerol um, gets absorbed into the bloodstream and gets taken up by the muscles, it pulls water in with it. So it's got three or four water molecules for every glycerol molecule in the dog's muscle. And then when the dog starts exercising, what happens is it burns that glycerol as a fuel and it liberates that water, and it's like they took a drink of water while they were running, but they don't have to swallow it, have it sit in their stomach, get it absorbed in their intestinal tract, and transport it to the muscle. It's already there. And what we found is in warm conditions, and warm for us would be if the dogs were running, you know, anything from about 25 degrees Fahrenheit to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Under warm conditions, the dogs would exercise over an hour and a half or two hours of exercise, and they'd be a couple degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the dogs did got the same amount of water, 
but didn't have the glycerol in it. You're going out to compete or to exercise or to work out the dogs. You're doing it in the morning, not uh, just prior to three or four hours ahead. Yeah, so we, we, you, you can do it actually the evening before. You can put it in the evening before because it'll stay in their muscles for about 24 hours unless they exercise. And then once they start exercising, they burn that glycerol and it's, it's there to help the muscle, but it's not going to stick around. Um, so we either do it the evening before, like on a three-day race, we might do it the night before and the morning of, and then we do it each morning of the race. And then the rest of the day, they would just get watered as they normally do. And we actually did some studies on the dogs and showed that over a three-day race with 30 below zero, which is really a hydration stress because they breathe out so much moisture um, that they don't get back. The dogs that were given water this way maintain their hydration and maybe even got 1% more hydrated than baseline. The dogs that, that were given the same amount of water without the glycerol over that period of time ended up 5% dehydrated. And 5% dehydrated is when is enough to show big decreases in performance. I really want to tell you about something that's made a big difference to our dogs here at Extreme Upland. We run a big string of dogs and we hunt a lot. And we found canine pit stop and their performance supplements called Prehydrate and Refuel. And it has made a remarkable difference to us. When we go in the field, the Prehydrate helps our dogs stay super hydrated. It's our silver bullet, really, in competition and when we're out hunting. And the Refuel is a lot like marathoners using the goo. It's the same thing, folks, that it keeps their energy stores up. The difference that this has made to our dogs, we wanted to let you know. If performance in your dogs matters, if you want to get optimum performance out of your dogs, this natural, easy-to-use system will make the same kind of difference to you. I can't recommend it high enough. Canine Pit Stop, check it out. This is awesome stuff. Well, to, so that, to that end, let's say we follow that regimen and we're out. For us, oftentimes, it, it's, it's a dichotomy for us because our warm temperatures can be, uh, well, we typically won't go out if it's that warm during the you know, summer or early fall hours when mm-hmm. it's going to get up to 85 to 90 degrees. Yeah, Fahrenheit. yeah we yeah. We're, we're trying to go way early when the rattlesnakes are still sluggish <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and at nighttime, right, typically. So we're trying to avoid that, but it's still pretty warm by the time we get finished or when we start. So if we've, if we've hydrated the way you're talking about, we're in this couple hour period of time, maybe even two hour to four hour period, depending on how we're running. Is there a different technique that, I mean, I'll, oftentimes I, I, I've done some competitive stuff. I played a division one athletics, but I'm not at your level, but I did do some mountain racing. And I, I always thought like a little banana, like a quarter of a banana or some of these packets, these gel packets or even water. Should we, should we not be doing different things during that time? Just we try to keep our dogs out there working and not coming back and begging for water a lot, but should we, mm-hmm. I remember back in the day when I was playing football, we, we would all gather around a, an irrigation hose because our coaches were old school, right? And <laughs> you couldn't have water the whole time. Yeah. And so we were, we were hiding each other, trying to suck water out of the irrigation ditch. That's a great question. Um, and I, I can tell you what we, you know, I, I told you I had my, um, my setter, and I would, I don't know if you guys know Bob West, but I worked with Bob West for many years at, at Karina, and he trained both um, setters and pointers and Labrador stuff. He, we did a lot of hunting together, and, and sometimes in warm weather. And um, the thing that we worked on there, there's a couple things to keep in mind. We definitely use the glycerol, and you know, if you guys are starting way early in the morning, give the glycerol the night before. That's fine, it'll still be there. And then just water them as you normally would. But I can tell you one trick that really helps the dog. If you're I know you want to call them all the time, but I imagine that you're, you're having some contact with them, say, maybe once or twice an hour. If you carry a squirt bottle with you, and you have to train the dog to do this, but it's really easy to do it. You can just um, give them a squirt or two of water, and, and it will dramatically increase their ability to cool themselves, and I'll tell you why. Dogs are kind of adapted, in, as, as you know, as predators, right? So they're... they're um, idea is that they're going to chase things and they're cooling you know they don't sweat like we do so they don't need electrolytes the same way we do they get all the electrolytes they need in their food in fact if you overdo electrolytes you can you can mess up their hydration that way you can actually have them lose water through their kidneys and cause some problems when when a dog pants what it's really doing is it's cooling the, the, the blood that is going to its brain so that the brain stays at a good temperature 
at the expense of actually causing extra heat in its body because the respiratory muscles are generating heat. And that's a way to, to stay alert and get after prey and at the expense of your body. And then eventually you get so warm, you have to lay down. But what you can do to help them with that is how many times have you seen one of your dogs come up to you with a wide open mouth, panting like crazy? And if you look in that mouth, it's got all this white frothy foam. That foam acts as an insulator on the, basically the radiator that the dog has in the back, the roof of their mouth in the back of their throat. They've got this, this blood vessel plexus that, that actually works just like a radiator to cool the blood that's going to the brain. If you rinse that foam off, and it only takes a squirt or two, so you're not giving them so much water they're going to throw up or it's going to make it hard for them to run. But if you just rinse that foam off, you increase the efficiency of that cooling system by about three or four fold. And then the dog can actually run cooler and, and continue to work well. Doesn't have to pant as much. So that's a little tip that we found that really works well when you're working dogs in hot weather. This is one of the questions that Talmage uh, had. My other question, though, is also as far as energy, you know, and, and keeping them functioning well when we're out there mm -hmm. running. Have you found a benefit in giving some kind of a some, yeah. some sort during the exercise? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That's a really important point. So, you know, we talked about not feeding too much before they run because that insulin spike will decrease their ability to mobilize and use fat. But once they're exercising, that's, that's not a problem. So what we have, and I'll, I'll give you a, a great example. I, I had this little player named Clem. He was a great, great target dog. And when we're hunting target, a lot of times we're, you know, changing elevation two to 4,000 feet several times a day. A lot of times we'd hunt from, you know, it takes us a couple of hours to get out to where we're hunting, but we'd hunt 12 hour days. Um, when that's the only dog I had. And, you know, the, the last time I hunted Clem up in the mountains, he, he found a brace of ptarmigan for me a quarter mile from the car after he'd been hunting for 11 and a half hours. And he was still that birdie that he could do that. And what we did with him is we, at the time, Purina was making these um, post-exercise carbohydrate replacement bars, which is based on a study that we did many years ago with our sled dogs. If you can give the dog, like a, a typical dog, like the size of dog that you're hunting, if you can give them about a half an ounce to an ounce of an easily digested carbohydrate source about every 40 minutes to an hour that they're hunting, it will make a huge difference in, in their energy level, in their, you know, their, their cognitive level, how the brain is functioning. It just maintains their blood glucose really, really well through the whole hunt. And, you know, the brain, that glucose is the major fuel for the brain in dogs. And, of course, when we're hunting what cloning dogs, we want them to be alert. We want them to be smelling. We want them to be on it. And if their blood glucose starts to drop, they get a little sluggish. So this is a really easy way to do it. Unfortunately, that bar isn't made anymore, but you could use things like they have this uh, human product called Goo, which is made for marathon runners or ultra marathoners who do the same thing about every 40 minutes. They'll take a small dose of this stuff and it keeps them going for hours. And, and you can use that same stuff for your dogs. It comes in little um, packets that are um, like a little plastic cup with a little foil over it, and the, you can just squeeze it in the dog's mouth. And um, some of the flavors the dogs really like, there's a vanilla flavor that our dogs really like. You can also make the stuff yourself by just buying maltodextrin, which is used like in gravies. It's a digested cornstarch. Um, and the dose that we use is about one gram per two pounds of body weight. And again, we're giving that every 40 minutes to an hour to when they run, and then we do it again right after they finish exercise. And that timing is really key on that because protein pores in muscle that transport the sugar into the muscle where it's going to be burned for energy are on the cell surface of that muscle during exercise and for about 30 minutes afterwards. And once you get past that 30 minutes post-exercise, those little pores get internalized in the cell, and the dog's no longer able to bring glucose in at a very high rate, and so it's just not that effective. But if you can get some into them right after they finish exercise, that really makes a huge difference when you're when you're hunting multiple days in a row. We, we did a study on our dogs where we, we gave half of the team, just as I described, about a, a gram per two pounds of body weight of this in water right after exercise, and the other half of the team just got water. And we fed them the regular meal to regular time, and we took some muscle biopsies in the dogs the next day. And the dogs that had been given this stuff right after exercise had completely replenished their carbohydrate stores in their muscle. The dogs that had just been given water and a meal were down to 
So over three days, that that gets more and more exaggerated so that the dogs that don't have them really are out of gas by the day three and and about halfway through day two, whereas the ones that that get this kind of a treatment, they have the same performance all three days. Not all the time, but just on occasion, we have uh, puppies and, and they seem to grow out of it. You know, I will transport them. They get there and they've thrown up and they're extremely ill and then they don't have a very good hunt. Is there, is there anything you can do? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the biggest problems we ran into in dog mushing because, you know, we'd go to these races where teams from literally all over the world were coming in and they were bringing bugs with them that our dogs had never seen. And here you all are all dressed up and ready to go, and then your dog team gets sick. And it doesn't matter how well trained they are, they're just not going to perform well when they're sick. So there's two, two technologies that we've used for that that work extremely well. One um, is to use a good probiotic. And of course, you know, we have a, a Portafloran Trina. The other ones that I like that are really, um, really effective are um, Lactobacillus acidophilus based. And here's a real important thing about probiotics. You've got to be careful because if you go in the grocery store and you look at probiotics or you go in the pet food store, a lot of times they'll say, oh, we've got 10 different probiotics in here. A lot of times people don't know how those probiotics are working. They may be working with each other or against each other, but my experience is that it's better to feed one. And the other key thing on probiotics is that you need to feed a high enough level to be effective. It's kind of like sending ground troops into a war. And if you don't have at least 10 to the 9 or a billion colony-forming units, which is how they measure these things, uh, you might as well forget about it. It's kind of like peeing to raise the level of the ocean. It doesn't work. So you need you need about a billion. And then the other technology that we've used for years that really is effective, there's a, there's a company, Trial Nutrition, that makes a, a product called Protomax. And this, you know, I don't have any stake in this company, but I've used this product a lot and I've had great luck with it. it it's basically made for the swine industry. You know, swine are raised pretty tight quarters and they used to give them lots of antibiotics to keep them from getting sick and so that they grow more. But you know, we know that feeding antibiotics like that isn't really good for the pigs, for, the, for us, for the environment. It, it, it helps support you know, the generation of, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is a real problem. So what they did is they developed a technology where they inject chickens with um, vaccines against all the common pathogens, salmonella, E. coli, clostridium, parvovirus, those types of things. And the chickens then lay eggs that are full of billions of antibodies, which is what your body makes in response to a vaccine, against these different pathogens. And they have a patented technique where they spray dry the eggs, and then you feed a very small amount, like a half a teaspoon a day, of this dried egg powder to the dogs. And what it does is, you know, 80% of your immune cells are in your gut. It activates those cells so that when uh, the dog is exposed to a bad bacteria or a bad virus, it never gets a chance to adhere to the wall of the gut and then colonize and make them sick. It, the, the, the cells are already activated and they take care of them. And I tell you what, we've used this now for about 15 years. And in that period of time, I have never had to take a dog out of training or out of a race because of illness. And before that, it happened every year. So, um, and we've done a ton of studies on this stuff. It, it does so many different things. I mean, it helps stabilize your gut microflora, which is a big part of staying healthy. And it, and it keeps the dogs, it even works well against stuff like kennel cough. So, I, I, I'm, and that was always a, a big issue too about going to races. So, I'm, I can't tell you how firmly I believe in this particular product and we would use it here's the here's the clincher though it takes about a month lead time of treating the dogs with it to, for it to be fully effective and you have to give it every single day if you miss a few days they lose the, uh, the effect of it um, and it is somewhat expensive but uh, last time I looked I think it was a 20 kilograms so 44 pound drum of that stuff was about a thousand dollars but that would treat my team for at least one sometimes two seasons and when you look at you know what we invest in terms of time and energy and effort and dollars into preparing a team to win a world championship, it's worth the investment. What about if you you've got young dogs that are having a hard time traveling due to motion type sickness? They just have a hard time you know traveling in the in the boxes, and you get them out, and they've they've been car sick for the the trip there. Yeah, and um, that that is a great question. So for motion sickness, I mean, just a couple things. What we did with our puppies, we would put the puppies in there and even feed them in there sometimes. So I was just sitting in the, in the yard, right? So it was stress going in there. They liked to go in there. It was fun to go in there. 
put a couple of them in together so they weren't by themselves. And then we would do stuff like we would approach the short trip. We'd pick up and then just make the trip a little longer. And, you know, they would, some of them get sick the first time, but usually by the third or fourth trip like that, they stopped getting sick. It was just sort of acclimating them to that kind of motion. Um, and then you can, you know, you can use little things like a, a, a very small piece of dramamine or something like that. But it tends to make them pretty milky and pretty sleepy, which isn't necessarily bad while they're traveling. You just want people who are up on the other end to know that they've been treated like that. For us, the, the acclimatization worked as well or better than the dramamine. You know, um, it's a little work. It's, I mean, I'm sure you guys have a puppy program too. We had a puppy program that tried to cover all the bases of what you would need to do with a dog as an adult. So they got used to it, like trimming their nails, right? And roll them over on their belly and making sure that they were good citizens when they're eating around other dogs. There are just lots of little things that we would do with them from the time they were very little so that, because we work probably like you guys do with dogs in fairly large groups. And so they've, they've got to be well-behaved when they're loose around other dogs. Just occasionally we have issues with, because we run in a lot of rocky lava, uh, rock country, um, and we do, you know, we run a lot, but sometimes we'll have issues with the pads uh, of the feet mm-hmm. coming off. Is there anything, I know sometimes genetically there can be an issue, sometimes it can be conditioning, but is there anything you found, a product or anything that you've found to try to, to work against uh, pad tears? That's it. We, we see them too. And uh, our, our issue is more um, like when you've had a, 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 a thaw and then it freezes again and then you get this crust on the snow and that can be really, really tough on pads. So I can tell you what I've learned from our guys. And like I said, we do have some of the breeds that you guys work with mixed in with them. So there's probably some things that apply there. Uh, one is that um, if you can keep the dogs housed on um, uh, some gravel, as long as they're not eating it and you know having digestive problems with it, that seems to really toughen up the pads as opposed to having them on. And I think concrete would work like that too. But um, as opposed to having them on like dirt or um, other or surfaces that, that don't promote a, a tough pad. Other things that you can do is make sure that you've got enough essential fatty acids. So, you know, I'll often add a small amount of corn oil, like a teaspoon a day to the dog's diet um, before they go into the heavy training or, you know, a week or two before you're going to go into something like that. And that what that does is it adds a suppleness. And that, that's not going to make them care more. It's actually going to make them more elastic and make them a little bit less likely to do that. The other thing that I've found is that, and I'm sure you guys have seen this too, dogs with dark pads tend to be much more resistant to that type of tearing than dogs with white pads. And so we'll even um, preemptively boot dogs. And we have these new boots now, I don't know if you guys have seen them, that are made out of ballistic cloth, you know, the stuff that they use for bulletproof vests. They're extremely lightweight. Um, we can get 75 miles on a, on a dry surface and longer than that on snow in these boots. Arlie, I, I tell you, we... We have learned a lot in just a small period of time that we've talked to you today. And, and just really, as we've listened to your other media, both in print and online, et cetera, you're great. Uh, I can't tell you how privileged we are to have spent this time. I think if people will listen and really apply this, regardless of whether they're hunting, you know, every week, multiple times or if it's occasional, I think just in the basic nutrition of their pets, you're you're a treasure trove, really. Is there anything, you know, you're thinking, and this guy, these guys, just if they just knew, they didn't ask me this question, but if there was just something that's on the back of your mind, if they would have asked, I would have loved to have told them this. Is there something that we're just missing? You know, not you guys. I mean, I think you guys are students of the sport and, and well accomplished in what you're doing. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest issues that I see in folks that maybe aren't quite as passionate about things or in tune are just paying attention to your dog. I think the biggest issues that we see in terms of health problems in dogs that are performing is are due to us, you know, not paying as close attention to things, you know, things like body condition score. You know, we get the habit of feeding the dog the same amount every day and, and really we should be adjusting that according to how hard they're working, the temperatures outside and all that stuff. And then, and then the other thing is, you know, when I bring a, a team of dogs in from a training run, every single training run, I will I will run my hands over those dogs' bodies, looking for areas that might be warm, like, you know, but give us an idea that they got some inflammation. Looking at their feet, that's so important. I mean, we have this adage in dog mushing, no feet, no team. And it's so easy to miss 
you know, splits in the in the webs or or nail bed inflammation or a, a nail that's getting a little too long before, and then it cracks and breaks. Um, those little things can take the dog completely out of performance, and they're so preventable. But they take attention. And then the other thing, which I'm sure you guys do all the time, is when we get done with a, a training run, I turn all the dogs loose and watch them. And you can learn a heck of a lot about how tired they are if they did have a minor injury. And you know, if you can catch a minor injury before. You run them again, you can keep it from becoming a, a major injury. So just a little attention to details like that, I think, can make a tremendous difference in both your enjoyment and, and your dog's enjoyment. The best relationship a person can have with a dog is when they're actually working with that dog. It, it takes that that relationship to a, a different level than folks who, who absolutely love and, and, and take care of their dogs as pets. But when you can work with them, it's, it's really a, a different experience. And I, it's always a pleasure talking to folks like you guys that are Well, that was just a fantastic interview with Dr. Arlay Reynolds. I know that it meant a lot to me. It was awesome information. I'm going to go back and listen to that again. Thank you so much, Dr. Reynolds, for your time. Uh, big shout out to Talmadge Smedley for his time to be here today. Uh, it was awesome to hear his questions and his feedback. We have put all these links of our sponsors in our show notes. So those of you that want to Go in and check out Canine Pit Stop and the hydration and the energy that there. Of course, Reb McNally's book, Chuckers Will Shoot Back and Other Fine Catastrophes. Awesome that we've linked that. Uh, we've linked also T's Doghouse in those notes and others with Dr. Arlie Reynolds. Thanks for being with us this week. This was, again, it was just awesome information. Thanks to everyone. Thanks for joining us, folks. And join us next week here on Extreme Upland, where it's all things Upland all the time. 